I want to start by reading something to you. In a recent article in the Federalist publication, editor David Harsani writes the following. During the 1864 presidential race between Abraham Lincoln and George McClellan, the New York Times published an article that contained this sentence. We have had many important elections, but never one so important as that now approaching. In any event, every candidate or publication that's made comparable declarations since that time regarding the presidential contest being the most important election of their lifetime or generation or in history or ever is completely full of it. (laughs) That goes for Gerald Ford, who claimed that the 1976 election was the most vital in the history of America. It goes for Walter Mondale, who in 1984 told a crowd, this is the most important election of our lives. It goes for John Kerry, who in 2004 said, this is the most important election in our life time. It goes for Joe Biden and Barack Obama, both of whom claim that 2008 was the most important election in my lifetime. Newt Gingrich said it as well in 2012. It certainly goes for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, neither of whom possesses the requisite talent, vision, or charisma needed to destroy this country in a mere four years. (laughs) Yet, On Tuesday, in Dade City, Florida, Clinton finally stated what many in her party, from the president to students to a 96-year-old Roger Angel, have been saying for months, I believe this to be the most important election of our lifetimes. For her, yes. For the rest of us, not so much. Judging from the histrionic rhetoric we hear daily, most people believe this is the most important election ever. Partisans always seem to believe that everything that happens to them right now at this very moment is the most important thing that has ever happened or will ever happen to humanity. Yes, government's increasing involvement in the economic and moral lives of citizens has made political stakes high. It's true that 2016 features the two suckiest candidates probably ever. It's also true that our collective vision of America... of the American project has frayed, perhaps beyond repair. With the intense scrutiny of contemporary political coverage, more people are invested in the daily grind of elections, which intensifies the sting of losing. This anger compounds every cycle, although winning brings its own disappointment with unfulfilled promises. That's not to say our constitutional republic isn't slowly dying. It probably is. This condition isn't contingent on an election's outcome, but on widespread problems with our institutions, politics, and voters. Whatever you believe the future of governance should look like, one election is not going to make or break it. If providence, or dumb luck, takes mercy on the Constitution, Washington, D.C.'s gridlock, an organic reflection of the nation's disposition will remain the status quo. Of course, None of this is to completely diminish the importance of the presidential election. Obviously, voters are making a decision about the future of of governance. Judges are at stake. Foreign policy is made. There are consequences. But if the republic can't survive a bad executive, then it's already dead. The title of this article is wonderful. David Harsini's title is this. This is the least important election of our lifetime. Oh, brothers and sisters, it was, and this is my own personal experience, I saw a, I saw a sign, an election sign, it said, Dan Payton, 
I'm not running for anything. I just wanted a sign. <laughs> I'd love, I love the humor. It was a presidential election from many years ago. One candidate was considered a godly man who even publicly acknowledged his relationship with God. He was not well known and served his country honorably and was very committed to caring for those less fortunate. It was actually a presidential election I'm very aware of. The other candidate was very well known, had a history as a womanizer, at one point was pro-abortion and many considered his presidential aspirations a joke. To the surprise of many, this man won the election defeating an incumbent president. It was the election of 1980 where Jimmy Carter was defeated by Ronald Reagan. Many consider this the most important election of their time. Listen, if you are engaged in any kind of media, social, TV, newspaper, or magazines, you can't help but know what is happening in America today. Today, many American evangelicals specifically are beside themselves about this election and the future of our country. They, many are consumed, some are afraid, some are angry, frustrated, confused. There is a concern, brothers and sisters, that the wrong vote will undo our country, our lives, and particularly our Christian faith and our churches. I think this morning as we look not to the election day of November 8th, but to the following morning of November 9th, I believe we should ask ourselves one question. How does God want me to respond to this? What is God saying to me right now in light of this upcoming election? I believe his answer is found in Matthew 6. And if you look with me to Matthew chapter 6, Verse 33. I believe the Lord's response is, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, We look to you, our eternal Father. We look to you, our sovereign Lord. We look to you and we look to abide in you this morning as we hear you speak to us through your word. And Lord, that is our prayer this morning. As our Father and as you have spoken so wonderfully in your word that you would help us to hear and to abide and to receive. Help us this morning, Lord, to find refuge in you. And Lord, as we are gathered here this morning, we ask that all of our thoughts and our speech, even in our listening, Lord, would bring glory to you. Father, please help me to serve these dear folks in Jesus' name. Amen. That is his answer. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Even when you are anxious about the world around you that can appear 
can appear to be crumbling and is becoming more hostile to our citizenship in the kingdom of God. The context of this passage, and let me actually, if you would look at Matthew 6, beginning in verse actually 24, because that is where I want to begin. Jesus begins speaking, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, uh, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither snow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, be, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life span? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The context of this passage is Jesus teaching on money, material needs, treasuring Christ, and not being anxious about how we will be provided for in this. But this passage fits into a larger context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and his teaching about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And it's within this larger context that a larger principle it comes into view. And that is the principle I want to talk about this morning. How do Christians respond not to just the anxieties of food and clothing and what happens tomorrow, but the troubles and trials of the world in which we live? How do we respond to that? Drew Hunter said this of Matthew's gospel. One of the great themes in Matthew's gospel is the mystery of God's kingdom. It dawned with Jesus' first advent, but will not be consummated until his return. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of God's reign. Jesus came to restore God's authority in the world, the authority that was first rejected in Eden and then ever since. Matthew's message, the good news of God's reign, reframes our outlook on the upcoming United States election. And what he is saying there is, seek first the kingdom of God, not the United States of America. Our culture 
desperately tries to find its identity in so many places, in relationships, in gender, in careers, and as parents, and as many other things. But our identity, brothers and sisters, is in Christ and in living in His kingdom. We identify as as disciples of Christ first, not as American citizens. In 1 Peter 1.1, we are told that we are elect exiles, men and women who live in another world, another country, another kingdom whose ruler is not of this world. And Peter's point is our identity is not of that time, but as Christians, and that we are citizens of heaven. Yes, we are citizens of the United States, let, let have no doubt. I understand that. But we, brothers and sisters, are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that is why Jesus says here, seek first his kingdom. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. Through faith in him, we enter the kingdom. It belongs to us, but we live in the kingdom of the world, although we do not belong to it. We belong to a new order of things, a new age altogether, a new humanity in Christ. But that new life has to be lived out within the context of the old. In other words, you live out your citizenship in the kingdom of God in this world. A world that you no longer belong to because you belong to Christ. We are not our own, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. We have been bought with a price, he says in 1 Corinthians 6. We belong to Him. And because we belong to Him, we belong in His kingdom. And we are citizens of His kingdom. As believers, I think this is what is so challenging for us. Living in this world as citizens of another kingdom, another country, so to speak. Forty years ago, when I came to faith in Christ, and forty years ago yesterday, Marilyn and I were talking about this last night. Forty years ago yesterday, we had our first date. That tells you how old we are. <laughs> she was just a child. <laughs> Forty years ago, when I came to faith in Christ, Jimmy Carter was elected president, and he was celebrated at that time, as the older folks here would remember, as a born-again Christian. And I actually remember... Um, That was the very first election I ever voted in. I did not vote for Jimmy Carter. I voted for Gerald Ford. Uh, My wife voted for Jimmy Carter because he was a born-again Christian. And it was a time when Christians were, and the church, were received with with a level of respect that has completely eroded today. Now we are viewed as enemies of the culture. We are social outcasts and even considered at times anti-American. We are hated in many circles because of what we believe in and most importantly, who we believe in. And in this season of growing anti-Christian sentiment, we can be tempted, oh, very tempted to place our hope where God never intended our hope to be placed. The governments and kingdoms of this world even the United States of America, it's not our hope. 
and it will never be our hope. They will never rescue us from the domain of darkness or deliver us from evil, brothers and sisters. Our only hope is the kingdom of God, a kingdom we belong to and a kingdom we must always seek to represent in our lives regardless of what is happening around us and what is happening to us. Because we are citizens of another kingdom. So my proposition this morning is this. Peace and hope are promised only to those who seek God's kingdom first. Jesus says here, he said that in verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. Listen, Gentiles. And what he means there are unbelievers. Those who don't know Christ, those who don't belong to the kingdom of Christ, those who don't have citizenship, they seek after things to find hope in. And it is why this election, this, this season has generated so much fear and so much anxiety and so much anger and so much confusion. It's why people have been so consumed by what has been happening because they are, they are seeking after things that are not eternal. They're not seeking after Christ and his kingdom. And so peace and hope are only found in their lives in temporary places and last because they are temporary. They don't last forever. They don't last eternally. And so peace and hope are promised only to those who seek first the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? If, if we're commanded here, we're instructed here, we're required here to seek first the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Just a, a few things. The kingdom is simply this, um, and I'll expand on it, but it's the rule and reign of God. That's what... That's what it is. The rule and reign of God. The expression of his gracious sovereign will being, being worked out in our lives. To belong to the kingdom of God then is to belong to the people among whom the reign of God has already begun. Sinclair Ferguson. Now in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus refers to the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven, 53 times. It is just replete throughout his, his gospel. And it is throughout the gospels altogether. The kingdom of God, let me tell you some things about the kingdom of God, this kingdom that you belong to if you've come to faith in Christ. Now, let me say this, if, if you are not seeking first the kingdom of God, if, if you have not put your faith and hope and trust in Christ, you are not a citizen of the kingdom of God. But you can be. You can be. You can be a citizen where your hope and your peace and your eternal life are secure because it'll be secure in Christ. The kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. In Luke 133, 
And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Matthew 4.23, the kingdom of God is one of good news. And he went out throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. It's a kingdom that suffers violence. Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And we're beginning to see to some small level that happening in our own culture today. The kingdom of God is one of suffering for the king. Which is not the most attractive selling point of the kingdom of God. Second Thessalonians 2, or sorry, 1 verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And then something we just recently studied, the kingdom of God is one of hope and light. Colossians 1, 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Brothers and sisters, that is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom that we live in. And so three points this morning. Not long points, three main points. The first one is the privilege of belonging to the kingdom. Because if you are going to be seeking first this kingdom, I want you to understand how you got there. I want you to remember how you got there. I want you to rejoice how you got there. I want you to reflect and appreciate how you got there. We are in the kingdom of heaven. We've been granted because we have been born again, the privilege of living in the kingdom of God. The privilege exists because our sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ. This privilege exists because God has extended mercy to us and not judgment. This kingdom privilege exists because God did not just save us from our sins, but made us new creations, calling us his own children. Verse 32 of Matthew 6 highlights and defines the privilege we have of being subjects in the kingdom. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and then these words, and your heavenly Father. Your heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, He is our heavenly Father. The God who rules and reigns over all of creation, all of the universe, all that is in existence. He calls himself our Father. That is the privilege of living in the kingdom of God. That you are a child of God. And he says, I am your heavenly Father. 
And he superintends, he watches over with his sovereignty and his wisdom and his care every detail of your life, every situation. The Gentiles seek after things to make their lives better. Listen, we're all seekers. And the question here in Matthew 6 is, are we Gentile seekers or are we Christian seekers? Are we seeking after the kingdom of God or are we seeking after the things of this world that will satisfy for the moment but are temporary and have no eternal value? What could ever exceed the kindness and care God shows us? And which of you being anxious, can add a single hour to their lives. The birds of the air, they don't sow or gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father feeds them. The lilies of the field, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you just don't do it at the outlet malls in Clarksburg because you'll never get out (laughs) as our heavenly father listen brothers and sisters he knows what we need even before we ask now that you've heard that before you've heard that before and that there's a there's a there's a real temptation in the Christian life because of buzzwords and repetitive statements to grow a bit anesthetized to the truth of Scripture. But let us not grow anesthetized to truth. He knows what you need before you need it. Even as you consider many, many years ago, I might have told this story before, but it's worth telling again. Many, many years ago, when Marilyn and I were living in Atlanta, um, the week before Marilyn gave birth to my youngest, to Carrie, the insurance company called us and said, we've gone bankrupt, so we're not paying for any of all of Carrie's previous, Marilyn's previous visits to the doctor and anything, you know, birth at the, at, I mean, it's all on you. Um, goodbye. And... Uh, <laughs> So Marilyn gives birth a week later, and for the next year and a half, that I mean, we are just swamped with medical bills. And uh, finally, uh, the the state of Georgia, the insurance commission came through, and they paid the rest of our bills, which was a glorious day. And then the next week, our car totally died, and we went from paying off medical bills to now having to make car payments um, with three children and needing a bigger car. And I remember it was a Saturday that that happened and we were laying in bed that night and I was just lamenting. I was biblically lamenting. I wasn't just moaning, I was lamenting. Um, There's no book in the Bible of it, but it was a true lament. And I was laying there just telling Marilyn, you know, all, all I wanted, all I wanted was a gas grill. And we can't afford that now. That's all I wanted. And so the next day, we're at church, and um, as we're leaving, one of the guys in the church came up to me and said, hey, Larry, c- come with me to the car. I-, I-, I need to give you something. So we go to his car, 
And he opens the back hatch, and there is this gas grill, this brand-new boxed charcoal gas grill. He said, Larry, I bought this yesterday for Marsha and I, and, and I was getting ready to take it out of the box, and just felt like the Lord said we're supposed to give it to you. So here it is. I don't lament anymore. <laughs> Listen, God does know what you need before you ask. When it's in your heart, when it is in the cries of your heart, when it's in the laments of your heart, when it's in the doubts of your heart, when it's in the fears of your heart, God knows whatever it is that you are struggling with now and you're wondering, is God even aware of it? Oh, yes, He knows. He knows. Our Heavenly Father knows. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He does not exist in time. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows what elections mean. He knows what outcomes they will cause. He knows what his children will be experiencing as a result. Oh, he knows. And yet, he says this, how can we be anxious about anything? Elections or food or clothing or governments included when God has authority over it all. Matthew 28, 18, if you remember, all authority has been given to me. Jesus has all authority. That is the privilege of living in the kingdom. God is our Father and cares for us. Secondly, the priorities that we have of living in the kingdom, of seeking and serving and and being radical for Him. We, we cannot make the serious mistake, brothers and sisters, of looking for, living for, and hoping for heaven here on earth. It's not going to happen. If you're hoping for heaven, it's never going to happen. The first priority of belonging to the kingdom of God is to seek Christ above all other masters as Jesus speaks of in verse 24, listen, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one or love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And there, then he goes on, therefore, I tell you. The context of this passage is about money not being your master. But the larger principle here is this, not to let anything in this world be your master other than Christ. But to look to Christ for everything and not look to career or relationships or hoping in things that are not of the kingdom of God or personal dreams and desires or governments and politicians. There is nothing more important than seeking Christ and his kingdom. Now, how will you know if you are seeking first the kingdom of God as your highest priority? I think it's fairly simple. It's revealed by what you speak most about. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And by what you do, how you live. John 14, 15, John writes, and I will read that to you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
what you say, what you speak most about, and how you live, what you do. That is one of the priorities we have of living in the kingdom of God. Is seeking after Him. Serving is the next one. Another priority is serving. As subjects of God's kingdom, we have responsibilities. Every generation of believers, every generation of believers has faced evil days. We are not alone. We are not unique. Our responsibility in the midst of these evil days is to be a witness for Christ and make a statement by our lives that is contrary to the culture. And we do it by the way we live and what we say, what we speak about, what's most important to us. And if, listen, you want to make a biblical statement about a biblical marriage? Well, live a Christ-centered marriage. You, you want to make a biblical statement about family life? Well, we must parent by the authority of Scripture and not by cultural wisdom. The culture's approach to parenting will never be wiser or better than God's word. Russell Moore says this, the church now has the opportunity to bear witness in a culture that often does not even pretend to share our values. Listen, that is not a tragedy since we were never given a mission to promote values in the first place, but to speak instead of sin and righteousness and judgment of Christ and his kingdom. Our end goal is not a Christian America, either the made-up past or the hoped-for future. Our end goal is the kingdom of Christ made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. We are in Christ, the heirs of his kingdom. Regardless of what party, after November 8th, regardless of what party holds sway or which candidate is elected, the kingdom of God will advance and its influence will not fade or not be stopped. It will always have a voice because the kingdom of God exists right here in this church, in Grace Church. And thirdly, in this priorities is being radical. We are supposed to be so totally sold out for Christ. We are to have sold all we had for the pearl of great price. Matthew 13, 45. The price, listen, the price for the pearl of great price is not a one-time purchase. It's a lifetime of being sold out for Christ. A lifetime. A day-by-day denying ourselves and taking up our cross. A day-by-day of being sold out regardless of how tempting the culture is. Serving Christ in his kingdom means we deny ourselves. And we suffer, if necessary, for him and for his kingdom. Listen, do you want to live radically for Christ? Do you want to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? The most radical political action you can take is gathering together here on Sunday morning. I mean that. I'm not, I'm not hyping that. Much of America no longer gathers here. And the folks that gather here are considered old-fashioned, bigoted, anti-American, narrow-minded. 
And yet we gather here to celebrate our allegiance to Christ above our allegiance to anything else. We gather here to publicly declare that we are worshipers of God. We gather here to declare that He is our King. We gather here to declare that we are not divided by race or ethnicity or culture or country. We gather here to declare that we are pro-life, we are pro-marriage, we are pro-family. We gather here to make a statement and it is a radical statement for the kingdom of God. And when we show up here on Sunday mornings, we're just not coming to gather to sing or to hear the preaching of God's word. We're gathered here to unite together in the kingdom of God, to declare to a world that is perishing that Christ is above all. Brothers and sisters, that is what we seek. And then the third main point is this, what God promises because we live in the kingdom. In his sovereignty, he promises to take care of us, which includes watching over and ordaining or permitting the decisions of governments. Listen, live, live with this verse in, in mind as November 8th rolls around. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You want to know who rules in our country, in, in the nations around the world? It is God. It is God. This, this is the time when your belief in the sovereignty of God, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is, this is where it really, it is real or it is not. Do you believe in the sovereign rule and wisdom and reign of God? Somebody once asked me with all the travel I do interna- internationally that I've done in the past and getting on airplanes and, you know, do I ever worry about crashing? And I just said, no, if... God is sovereign. If it's my time to go, my days are numbered by the Lord and it is my day to go. It doesn't matter if I'm walking up to giant or I am flying in an airplane, wherever it is. If it's my time, it is my time. The sovereign one has determined that. And he is the one who installs all governments and all leaders In his sovereignty, he promises to take care of us. Every nation, every government, every dictator, every political leader, there is nothing in the kingdom of God. Nothing. They hold no sway or power. They will one day, they will one day, as we will bow their knee before Christ and declare that he is Lord. We should have no worries and no anxieties because the sovereign one rules over our lives. And he does it perfectly. He does it patiently. He does it kindly. He does it powerfully. And he will do it eternally. You should not worry. The Lord, we sang about it today. The Lord is our refuge. We run to him. We don't run to the voting booth hoping that we're going to find hope. Goodness, no. We run out of the voting booth. (laughs) (laughs) Ah! (laughs) 
this election. I, I just want you to know your pastor, at least this pastor, I'm not talking about Devin. Uh, this pastor, I went on a political fast starting July. I have not watched any Fox News, any CNN News, no news, no news, no, not any of the debates, nothing. I, I fasted. And I, Marilyn, Marilyn wanted to watch it. Fine. No problem. Me, I, I watched cheesy Hallmark movies or sports or I just ate ice cream, which made me feel a whole lot better than, than looking at the news. Um, I am not worried about this election. I want you to know that. Living in the kingdom of God means our future is secure. We don't have to be anxious about tomorrow. Why? Why should? Look at verse 34 of Matthew 6. This is a great, great verse. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why would you dare borrow trouble? (laughs) Why be in debt to tomorrow's trouble? Don't. Listen, the kingdom of God is good news. It is a gospel kingdom which promises forgiveness from sin, reconciliation with God, identity with Christ, eternal life in Christ. There is nothing to worry about, brothers and sisters. Now, maybe this election has revealed some anxieties in you. I don't know. I'm not presuming it has. Um, But maybe it has. And if your mind has been more engaged in politics than in Scripture, okay, you need to change. If you've used more energy thinking about this election and its consequences than being involved in the life of the church, you need to change. I know elections have consequences. And I knew that I know they do matter, but no election and no government and no political leader and no unjust law can undermine the kingdom of God or stop the spread of the gospel. So, if you are worried as your pastor, stop. <laughs> and if you are concerned about what's going to happen on November 8th, get over it. <laughs> it's not a problem. God is in control. He rules and reigns. I love this country and I am very patriotic. I have the deepest respect for men like my dad who served in two wars and the men in this room who served in war and served in our military. I love those men and I support those men and I want to see justice and morality and biblical values and Christ honored in our country. But that's ultimately a false hope. Because only in heaven is there a perfect government and a perfect society. So we are to seek the kingdom of God. Okay? Both the kingdom of God that is now, the kingdom of God that is now that exists in this church, in our lives, and the kingdom that is to come. See, we live in this kingdom now and kingdom coming time. But there is grace given by the Spirit of God who dwells in us, who has been given to us as a guarantee of our future hope in a kingdom that is perfect, who will sustain us now in this time as we live in the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount 
is Jesus' teaching on how we are to live in the kingdom. But it only remains a sermon unless we obey it. Sinclair Ferguson said this, this teaching, this teaching Sermon on the Mount, will change us only when we submit to the sovereign and gracious one of the reign of the one who preaches it. And he's not talking about me. <laughs> he's not talking about me as the one who preaches it. He's talking about Jesus Christ. That we submit to his reign and to his message because he is the king. Let's pray. Father, our hope is in you. And so today, as each man and woman leaves this church, Father, I pray that their hearts would be at peace, their minds would be at rest as they look to you and to your kingdom. Lord, oh Lord, thank you that you do rule and reign. Thank you that you are in control. We now, this very moment, submit again our lives to you and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, believing that all will be added to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.